All right, good morning. Let's pause for just a second and say a prayer, and then we can uh, use, the, use the ensuing silence to find a spot to sit. Let's pray. Lord God, your almighty power is made known chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we may be partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Lindsay told me the money's going to St. Matthew's Soup Kitchen in the baskets. Tony Lowe's father, you know about this. We've done this lots of times before. So put some money in the baskets and it'll go to St. Matthew's. Um, what else? Thanks to all the musicians this morning. Um, you know, uh, you may know, we talked about this a couple of times, the Cezé CD that, the, that we recorded a few weekends ago. Um, with, I have the master CD on my desk and we're waiting on just a few other particulars. And, so it'll be the next couple of weeks that we'll have the CD ready. Um, and as I, was, as I was thinking about this, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate, very blessed by all the, the talented musicians we have here. And it's great that we get to share it with all kinds of folks on a Sunday morning and that we'll get to share it um, through this Taze CD. So thank you to everybody who participates. Thank you to everybody who contributes. It's, it's fantastic um, and, and wonderful this morning as well. Is there anything else I'm missing? Anything that needs to be discussed so now, uh, I knew this was coming. I knew that I was going to be doing this for a while. Pastor Brzezik told me, I think probably back in July, he said, will you teach my Bible study on October 26th? So I wrote it down. Um, and in an effort to be on task, I was listening to his Bible studies, which are very interesting, aren't they? He's a good teacher. Um, but last week's, I didn't get to hear. So I don't know what, no, that helped. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, Mary, <laughs> Mary was working hard on other things that I had given her to do. So, <laughs> so but this is okay because then you can you can tell me what happened last week, right? <laughs> Any volunteers? What? Uh, let's do it this way. What was the story you discussed last week? The paralyzed man. Okay. Um, and do you recall? Let's see. Three. Five, what, how's it go? Seven, five, or three words? How can, you, how can you summarize it? Anybody? Did you finish it? Did you get to the point of summarizing it? It wasn't his faith. It was the faith of his friends. A remarkable thing. We, we, this happens all the time. In fact, uh, in the very near the text that we're going to study today, the same thing happens. We have, I mean, so like Jairus comes asking for his daughter to be healed. It's all, you know, parents asking their children to be healed. The centurion comes asking for his servant to be healed. Wow, there are a lot of people in here. This is, this is great. It's really nice to see you all this morning. Um, okay, so it wasn't his faith. It was the faith of his friends. What else? What else? Marilyn. Right. Jesus is after something uh, often different than what you expect, although he doesn't, that doesn't mean that he doesn't give you the things that you think you need as well. Right. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He's clever, isn't he? <laughs> okay, good. All right, thank you. Um, everybody have the handout for today? No. Let's distribute some of those. Who needs one? Can I get somebody to help me out here? All right, thanks, Martha. All right, so raise your hand if you need one. Martha's coming around here. Um, I know Pastor Brzezik has spent a lot of time talking about, about why... It's valuable to study these stories and to learn and to learn them and to think about how you can tell them. 
And it occurred to me, though, that, that the, the kind of things that, that I might bring out in the story might be a little bit different than what Pastor Bruzik does. Um, and so I wanted to give sort of my take on, on telling stories, just, just by way of introduction, so that when we get to the story, um, you're, not, you're not sort of surprised by, by what I'm doing. So we're getting close to everybody having one. The first, Pastor Bruzik gave us this paradigm. What we're doing very simply is we're learning how to be kind, how to tell stories, and then if if the occasion presents itself to ask, ask questions. And I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about telling stories lately. I don't know. Um, I, listen to, I listen to a lot of podcasts when I come to and from work in short seven-minute segments because that's how long it takes me to get here. So it's, it gets spread out over a long course of time, which builds the suspense. So if you're interested in uh, making uninteresting things more interesting, you can... But, but that's not what I'm saying. The podcasts are very interesting. I listen to, in particular, a podcast called Radio Lab. I don't know if you're familiar with it. WNYC, New York. Anyway, the whole, the whole point, the whole premise is they tell stories, and they have all kinds of great things going for them. Huge production value, very interesting stories, a huge budget for research and investigation. But the, but the fascinating thing, which I think pertains, uh, which is relevant for all of us, is how, just how, how they understand the importance and value of being good at storytelling. And this is true, um, this is true generally speaking as well. And some of the things that they do, I was reflecting on this as I was preparing to teach today. One of the things that I, know, that I, that I, I thought of is when on this, in this radio show, when they're telling stories, it's never about the hosts of the show, right? They're always telling somebody else's story, which has a, a, you know, an analogy in what we're doing, right? When we study the stories of Jesus, we're not telling stories about ourselves. They, they're relevant to us and they've had an impact on us, but we're not talking about ourselves. We're talking about Jesus. And this is useful. I mean, if you, if you can think about just sort of caricatures of folks who tell stories and they, all, they do is, all they ever do is talk about themselves and how uninteresting that can be or how, how, it can, be, how, it can, how it can be overplayed after a while. So it's better if you're telling stories about somebody else. It, one, um, it makes you more interested in the story. It makes you, it makes you easier to listen to because, because it, there's, no, there's no sort of skepticism about why you're doing this. You, you're telling the story about somebody else because you believe that what you have to say about them is important. It's, it's not a matter of self-promotion, okay? So that's one of the reasons why uh, telling stories about Jesus actually ends up being pretty easy because we're not, we're not trying to promote ourselves. We don't have to convince somebody to like us, which can be very difficult, I know. Um, we, we are trying to convince somebody to like Jesus, and he, he makes it easy, Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions there? So that's point 1A. It's about drawing people to Jesus. This is, it's not about you. It's good news. It's about drawing people to Jesus. You don't have to worry about, about selling yourself. So I wanted to throw this question out. Um, with that in mind, and also just with your experience of, of storytelling, what, what are the marks of a good storyteller? How do you think of somebody or somebody you, who know, you know who's, who tells stories very well? What do they do? That makes them a good storyteller. Aaron. Okay, a hook. Okay, an opening. Marianne. They're what's that again? They're calm and patient. Calm and patient, and that's so, and that's great. So they're calm and patient. This is something I struggle with. In case you haven't noticed, my pace is excessive. So. And the reason is, now, I thought about, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. The reason is because I'm, I've always been afraid that if I didn't get to the point quickly, people would stop listening to me, right? They would, I got to get to the punchline really fast. So I'm always, there, here I go again. I'm always trying to, uh, you know, get to the point fast so that, so that 
I can convince people to, to believe the point rather than listening to all the backstory. Well, somebody who believes in their story you know, can be calm and patient because they know that the, that the story that they're presenting leads to, it, it, it builds on itself and it leads to this conclusion which they believe <coughs> in, right? And they're prepared. So they know their story well. Okay, these are all great insights. So you know the story well, Lindsay. But they're not rehearsed. They're not rehearsed. They tell it naturally. Like it's like, they, it's, not, it's not a memorized thing, right? Good. These are all great insights. Now, so what I want you to think about is how this is true for just story- storytelling in general, but it's especially true when we're telling stories as Christians because, one, we believe the stories we're telling, and two, because we've, we've internalized them. Right? We've taken them to heart. So we know them by heart. It's not just that we know them by rote, but we know them by heart, and so they're easy to tell. That's the goal, at least, right? And I know it's not always true, but that's, but that's the goal. That's what we aim for. So take a look at point C. Um, we had this great prayer that we, we I, I think it originates in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and this is, a, this is a great way to think about what we're doing when we study the Scriptures. Uh, you, you've probably heard this before. We've used it a lot uh, in the past. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So the key, the, the operative phrase there is inwardly digest, which I think in newer versions it gets translated as something like take to heart, which is also good. Um, but inwardly digest gives you the sort of sense that you're, you're, you're sort of gnawing on, chewing on um, the substance of the story. And Luther talks this way quite a bit about, about how we engage scripture. We should, we should, uh, we should treat it as, uh, as, you know, as food, as nourishment, which needs to be well digested. Okay? So that's, that's step one. And these are just sort of, these are from my perspective. That's step one in learning how to tell stories so that you're, they're your own. Step two is, is learning to ask questions about the stories. Um, Dr. Kleinig told us, I think when he was here, he told us that, this, that the rule he teaches to his exegetical students, to his students learning to interpret the Bible, the rule he teaches them is uh, figure out what's strange, what's unusual in the story, what, what doesn't make sense, and then ask the question. Ask the question of the text. Now, that gets us to point three. You don't always get an answer right away, right? So think of questions, ask questions of the text, and then be prepared to let those questions sit. You'll be surprised at when the answers, uh, at when the answers come up in other places, other parts of Scripture, or in the text itself, okay? So, and, th- and those are keys. Now, uh, as, I, as I note in point D, Pastor Brzezik uses nice little stars. I'm about <coughs> letters and numbers, so... Um, it's, this is all basic comprehension stuff, right? Stuff you learn in literature class. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about why this is different or what makes it different for Christians studying the Bible. But, but think about how you would read any other book, any other book that you were interested in or any other book that you needed to learn from. How do you engage that? Um, you ask questions and you look for answers. And you, point four, you explore the context, okay? This is also very helpful... Um, when we're, trying to, when we're trying to make stories our own, when we're trying to make, make them a way, learn them in a way so that we can present them as though they're not rehearsed, if you know the whole context, if you know where the story fits in the big scheme of things, then it sort of finds a natural spot in your mind, a natural place from where you can draw it out. Um, and that, that's very helpful. It also helps explain what's going on in the story, um, why, why things are happening the way they are. Okay, so explore the context, follow leads. There, it will often, and this is something... 
strongly encourage you to do. It will often happen that when you're reading a, a biblical text, a story, there will be parts of the story that remind you of other parts of the Bible, right? Things will happen that remind you of other Bible stories. And that's not incidental. It's not accidental. The biblical authors often did this on purpose so that we could draw connections between the stories. So follow those leads. When you see something that reminds you of another story, make the connection to that other story. Figure out how they're related. And that will help you again, making the story your own, learning how to tell it. I'm just sort of dumping this on you. I hope that, is this making sense? Okay. Um, then again, uh, number six, return often to the story. So you're not going to get it one time. You're not going to know the story well enough if you just read it once, right? You have to return to it again and again. Um, and this is why we read scripture all the time, right? This is, this is self-evident. Um, then finally, number seven, retell them. Um, you may know this if, you, if you're a teacher um, or if, you, uh, if you've ever been a tutor um, or you, you try to explain something to your kids, you find out that you learn something better when you try and teach it to somebody else, right? So don't just wait for the opportunity to retell it when, you know, when there's somebody who needs it in their life. Retell it as often as you can. Tell it to your spouse, tell it to your kids, tell it to your parents. Practice telling it, and when you do that, you'll find out uh, what things were unclear to you in the story. This is, this is always uh, fascinating to me. Um, how you, if, you, if you read a biblical text and then you... So this is what I do when I prepare for a sermon. I read the text, and I go home and I, I tell the text to Jessica. And she doesn't even have to say anything, but I, but I, I realize right away um, the things that I don't understand in the text because as I'm, as I'm explaining it to her, I realize I can't... Right? So, th- so that happens, and then you realize what you need to investigate further. Um, and then you also find out what's important to you in the text. So you realize the things about the story that you draw out. Right? You, f- you find out what, you, what you're emphasizing. And if you're sort of reflective about that, if you observe how you're telling the story, uh, you learn where the text has its application. Okay? How's that sound? Whew. That's okay. <laughs> I think there's, a, there's like a six-month period, so you're okay. So. <laughs> Every story needs a punchline. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you have to know where you're going with the story. Right, right, absolutely. Yep, exactly. That's right. So, and that's and that's why we ask. That's why Pastor Brzezik has been asking, "How can you tell the story in few words?" Because that's your punchline. That's where you're getting with the story, right? Okay. So now, what's different about all of these tactics for learning stories when we're learning biblical stories? Well, I think you've talked about this before with Pastor Brzezik. It's for one thing, these stories are true. So you can. You can tell stories that are com- totally false and they can be interesting and they can be relevant, but these have the special character of being true and inspired. And not only, not only are they inspired in, in that the texts are, um, you know, that the Holy Spirit was responsible for the texts being written down for our learning, but the Holy Spirit works through these words. So when you tell the story, you're not just sending out any old words, you're sending out words that are words with the Spirit. So all the more reason, all the more reason for us to take the words to heart, to take them seriously, to learn them well, okay? And we, uh, we see this all the time in the Old Testament. I'm going to skip to the letter F there for just a second. We see this all the time in the Old Testament. Boy, I'm running out of time. Okay. <laughs> God tells the people of Israel to, to remember the things he's commanded them, to write them on their, to inscribe them on their hearts, to put them on the frontlets between their eyes because he wants the words to be near to them. This is, this, is the, this is how the people of God are, okay? With his words near to them. 
Um, okay, one last comment here at this point, and then we'll get to the story. Um, letter E, you're learning a new language, developing a vocabulary. This is, this is sort of my paradigm for thinking about why we're telling stories. So you go through life um, with, a certain, with a certain vocabulary, a way that you think about things, not just in terms of words, but in a way you talk, in a way that you articulate things that are true in the world. Well, when you read the Bible, you are learning a new language. This is one of the great things about uh, Pastor Nelson's sermon this morning. He told us that, uh, that we, don't, we don't know the difference between freedom and slavery, right? This is, this is true all, all the time for... Um, this is, this is the nature of fallen humanity. We don't know the difference between what's good and what's not good, right? We don't, know what's, we don't know what's beautiful or what's ugly. We don't know what's freedom. We don't know what is slavery. And so when you learn the biblical stories, you're learning the vocabulary of God's truth. You're learning the vocabulary of goodness, of beauty, of freedom, of justice, of truth, and of, of righteousness, of Jesus' righteousness, all right? So you're learning a new vocabulary, and if you think of it that way, if you think of these stories informing how you think about the world, um, then, they, then they just come out in the way you talk as well. And uh, uh, just as a note, as a, one more apology for, or one more emphasis on trying to, trying to learn the stories well, a friend of mine once told me, um, he knew German really well, and he was trying to convince me that I didn't know it very well, which I didn't. And so he said, You're not, you don't know a language, you don't know another language unless you can translate the things that you hear. So it's not just understanding them, right? You can understand another language, but you really know it when you can translate it. So in a sense, what we're doing when we learn these biblical stories is taking them, heart, taking them to heart, digesting them, making them our own so that we can translate them for the people we encounter, for the world, okay? All right. That was page one. Let's go on to page two. Any questions? George. Right, you, that's right, yeah. We believe in Jesus, we believe in baptism, we believe in communion, and then you work from there and you apply it. And I think that's what you're getting when it, it's digested. Right, and, 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 and this is, it's, a, it's a great point, too, about how the people we tell our stories to, that we tell the Bible stories to, um, they, don't, they aren't all in the same place, right? And if you think about uh, where we've come from, we've come from a place of, thinking that evil was good, thinking that falsehood is truth, thinking that things that are ugly are beautiful, thinking that bondage is freedom. To go from one to the other is a, it's a 180 degree turn, right? It's a complete change, utter change. And that is, not, that is not done easily. In fact, it's not done at all without the Holy Spirit, right? It's a miracle. But that informs sort of how we think about the people we engage. Um, and this is why storytelling is so great, because storytelling is not just laying out facts, laying out a syllogism, A, B, therefore C. That is sometimes very useful, right? That is, and that is necessary in theology. It's necessary for us to draw strong conclusions and to say things are certain about God, right? That Jesus is both God and man, that the bread and wine are body and blood, right? We say these things with certainty. There's no storytelling involved when I say that. But at the same time, when I'm trying to convey to somebody how important this is, how important these things are that we do, I'm not going to convey it by 
hitting them over the head, right? I'm going to draw them. It's like uh, Hosea, Hosea says uh, to his, his wife that he takes out in the wilderness, he says, I'm going to woo you with, or I don't know how he said it. He says, I'm going to, woo, I'm going to allure you. So Richard. Being a teacher. Yeah. Right. And so trust in the story as well to again. Absolutely, yeah. Let it work and then right. um, you know, when you ram it down somebody's throat, you know. Sometimes they spit it right back out, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay. Let's look at Luke chapter seven. I thought since I only had four pages and Pastor Brzezik has often twelve, I thought I would get through all of mine. <laughs> I guess the spaces between my lines aren't as big as his are, so. <laughs> Okay. All right, so Luke chapter 7. Let's do this. Let me just read this for you. Now, I gave you on the last page, uh, I noticed Pastor Brzezik has been giving you the translation from the message, which I think is great. It's a paraphrase, um, and it puts it in sort of common, uh, an, a, a, a storytelling kind of a way. Um, so let me read this to you. Now, there are some things that are brought out in the ESV, which I think are valuable. So if we get to it, I'll, t- I'll tell you about that. But let's just listen for a second. Not long after that, and that that there is Jesus heals the centurion's servant, okay? Not long after that, Jesus went to the village Nain. His disciples were with him along with quite a large crowd. As they approached the village gate, they met a funeral procession. A woman's only son was being carried out for burial, and the mother was a widow. When Jesus saw her, his heart broke. He said to her, don't cry. Then he went over and touched the coffin. The pallbearers stopped. He said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead son sat up and began talking. Jesus presented him to his mother. They all realized that they were in a place of holy mystery, that God was at work among them. They were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back, looking to the needs of his people. The news of Jesus sped all through the country. Okay, so maybe I'll do it this way. Um... Just in case I don't get there, the main thrust that I, that I want to get out of this story, that I want, I want to convince you is in this story, is that Jesus is always doing more. He's always doing more, especially he's doing more than we ask for. Okay? So bear that in mind as we go along. But I want to, I want to sort of lead you through the context a little bit because I think it's very, it's very valuable for understanding what's going on. So chapter 7 of Luke fits into a big span of Luke chapter 3 through 7. Okay? So it's, chapter 7 is sort of the... The last book end, chapter 3, is the first book end. This happens, by the way, all the time in Scripture that you have, um, you have bigger, check, bigger chunks, bigger sections of Scripture that fit together well. And we see this in chapter, uh, chapters three through, 3 through 7. Chapter 3 begins with John the Baptist and Jesus. Chapter 7 ends with John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus goes into Capernaum, then he goes into Capernaum again. Uh, Jesus is talking about uh, the Old Testament, Isaiah 61. Uh, let's see, what does that say? I should have had this written down. I'm sorry. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So Jesus, in chapter 3, goes into the synagogue and reads from the scroll. He reads Isaiah 61, and then he talks about Elijah and Elisha. And then in chapter 7, things are turned around, and Jesus starts doing the things that Elijah and Elisha does, Right? healing the sick, raising the dead, um, saving the children of Gentiles, the servants of the Gentiles. 
Um, so Jesus is, is doing what Elisha and Elijah did. And then the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and they say, are you the one we are expecting or should we look for another? And he says, he basically repeats what Isaiah 61 is talking about. He says, well, tell, tell John, John's in prison, tell John what you see, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, right? So it begins with Isaiah 61, what Isaiah says about the Messiah. We have Elijah and Elisha, prophets, forerunners of Jesus, and then Jesus says, just starts doing what Elijah and Elisha do, and then in chapter 7, when especially when he raises the dead, he shows that he is he's the one. He's the one that they're expecting, okay? So this is the broad context, and this story, the story of Jesus raising the son of the widow, is really the capstone, because he's raising the dead, right? It's not, it's not just healing. It, all throughout chapters 3 through 7, he's casting out demons, healing fevers, cleansing lepers, healing the lame and the injured. He's saving the near dead. So that's the story of the centurion. is at the point of death, and Jesus heals him. And then with the widow at name, he actually raises the dead, right? Okay, does that make sense? Is that the con- do you see the context there? This is this big span, this thing that's been building since chapter 3. And in chapter 7 here, we get the point. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who raises the dead but he also is the one who does more, okay? So keep that in mind. All right. Letter B. Jesus has just healed the servant of the And we heard about this last week. He heals based, everybody see, it's page two, number two, letter B. Is that, okay. Um, we saw this last week. He heals based on somebody else's petition, somebody else's prayer. He does the same thing for the centurion. Now, something very different happens in the story with the widow, right? Why does Jesus heal the widow's son? Yeah, his heart is broken, he has pity. What did the widow do? Nothing, right? She didn't even ask him for it. He just gave it to her, which is a remarkable thing, right? So not only does he heal when your friends ask, you, ask him to heal, but he heals even when you don't ask him to heal. All right, let's see. So when he enters the, uh, the city Nain, and this is one thing that when I was reading the text, I said, well, why, why does Luke say, why does he tell us what the name of the city is? And this is just, so when I did some investigation, this is just another, another point adding to the fact that Jesus is doing what Elijah and Elisha did because it was in the city Shunem, which is on the other side of a small hill from Nain, that Elisha raised, Elijah raised the child of the Shunammite woman. Maybe you remember this story. He goes and meets the Shunammite woman. Her oil jar does not go empty. Her flower jar does not, her flower jar is not going to dry. Her oil jar does not go empty. And then her son dies. And she says, what did you do to me? And Elijah raises his son in Shunem. Well, just on the other side of the hill is Nain, the city that Jesus goes to. And he raises the dead there, just, just like Elijah does. Okay. So that, that just as, sort of as an example of how you, ask, how you can ask questions about things that that strike you. I mean, why does it matter that he goes into the city? Why, is, why does it matter that the city is called Nain? Oftentimes throughout the, the Gospel of Luke, we hear place names, and they're, we, we usually say something like, well, they're to show us that these places actually existed, right? Because people knew where that was, and that's true. But oftentimes something more is going on, and I think that, that that's the case here. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, Jesus comes into town, and a dead man is being carried out. And I think that, when I, as I picture it, there's this there's this very vivid image of Jesus with his great crowd, the people who followed him since he healed the 
centurion's servant. And they come into the town, and there's this great crowd coming out. In fact, the, so the message says it's a funeral procession. The words are exactly the same in Greek. He's coming with a great crowd. They're coming with a great crowd. He's got this crowd who are following him for life. And out of the town, there's coming this procession of death, this crowd of death. And these two worlds collide, okay? And so, that, so here's another thing, another way you can take the story is what happens with Jesus when death and life intersect? Life wins out, right? Jesus, and not only that, I'm, I'm getting to my punchline ahead of time here, but that's okay. Um, Jesus, Jesus takes the crowd of death into himself, into his crowd, right? He doesn't just... He doesn't just leave them as they were, he raises the dead, right? So he takes the crowd of dead and, turns and, and, and incorporates them into his crowd of life, all right? Now, the woman, we hear all these details. She, he is his, the, the, the dead boy is her only son, and she is a woman, okay? Which means uh, she has nobody to support her. This is something that you would, that you would infer if you, knew, if you knew the context, of, of the historical context a little bit. He has, she has nobody to support her, um, which means she is utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. She has nothing going for her, no livelihood. Um, which then, I think, raises an interesting question. What do you suppose, if, uh, if she was going to make a petition of Jesus, what would she ask for? What do you think she would ask for? A husband, yeah? A provider, right? Somebody, somebody to provide her livelihood. Somebody to give her income. I mean, it's, it's what she immediately needs. Now, of course, she might say to herself things like, you know, I wish my son weren't dead. But there's, there's, this, there's this thing. I mean, so, okay, so here's an interesting anecdote that illustrates it, I think. The other day, Nathaniel had a balloon, my little boy, almost four. This week, he'll be four. Has a, had a balloon. He doesn't know much about balloons. So it works inside, but he took it outside, and it blew away. It was really tragic. I mean, that was, that was heartbreaking. <laughs> And, uh, and he kept saying to me, Dad, get my balloon back. And I was, I was like, well, <laughs> I can get you another balloon. But, uh, so, but at that point in his life, at this point in Nathaniel's life, he hasn't quite made the connection that, that when some things happen, they are final, right? When a balloon blows away, you've got to ask for a different question, right? Dad's not going to get the balloon back. You can ask him for a new balloon. He can do that, right? Well, the widow certainly understands that when dead people die, when people die and become dead, you don't get them back. Right, so she wouldn't. She had no reason to ask Jesus for that. She would have asked for something else. She might have wished for it, but but if but get, get, but given this man, even even uh, Mary and Martha, when Lazarus died, remember Jesus comes and, and and they say to him, Lord, if you had been here, he would never have died, and he says to her, I, I, he says to one or the other, um, I tell you, he 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 will live, right? And she says, I know that he'll live on the last day, and because of course, why would she ask for him to be raised in this life? And then Jesus raises him in this life, right? Asks for, he gives her something more than what she would have asked for in this case. She, she wanted to just be consoled about her brother trusting in the resurrection. Jesus gave her more. She gave, him, gave her his brother back, okay? So the widow, uh, you know, had no reason to ask for this. Um, and Jesus, Jesus gives it to her. Gives her more than what she could have asked for. All right, where are we? Letter E. Any questions? <clears throat> yes. Widow, no husband, yeah. no son. Why a big crowd? That's a good. That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, you know, they often had professional mourners, um, so that so that if you had nobody, they would they would mourn for you, right? 
So that could that could be what's going on there. I'm not sure though. Anything else? Yeah, Derek. <clears throat> Maybe another thing to consider too. You were talking about Christ's crowd of life and this crowd of death that's coming out. There's two people's attitudes between these two groups as well, especially given that Christ's group, they've just seen him or they're probably fairly joyful and what right. their expectations right now because yeah. they've just been witness to this great miracle of someone who's almost dead and now they're all, you know now they're healed mm -hmm. and so they're probably really you know it's it's like this the big happy crowd and suddenly the wind gets blown out of their sails right out of the city comes this mournful procession right right the, um, yeah yeah and 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 i mean and jesus so what's remarkable then is how jesus how jesus deals with it so i want to i want to do this real quick take a look at the text see the things that i've circled I was going to write all kinds of notes in the margin, but there was not enough space, and I ended up, I had one copy that I threw away where I had underlined everything. So this is, <laughs> I'll just have to explain it. Um, okay, so the first thing, let's see. You see the red mark, and the mother was a widow. Okay, the next, the next sentence there. When Jesus saw her, his heart broke. Okay, so listen to what Jesus does. First of all, he looks, he sees her, he sees her. He has compassion, and this kind of this compassion is not. I mean, it's not just any ordinary pity, right? Uh, we, um, I don't know if you've heard this before. The, it's it's uh, sort of something that gets thrown around a lot at the seminary. So I know a lot of guys go out and are ready to share this great fact. But it's very interesting. The word for uh, compassion here, splangnitzomai. Um, it, it sounds like the your, it sounds like your intestines are getting old, which is exactly what it is. It's onomatopoetic, right? He, his we would say his heart was rent. They'd say his, his, his inner being, his bowels were, you know, contorted because of this. He, he was torn up about it, right? It's very serious. It's not just sort of passing pity, right? He is utterly distraught. Um, the, the, in the, the word is trans, translated from Hebrew. The word that it translates from Hebrew um, relates to the word for a mother's womb, okay? So to have compassion is to be, in a sense, maternal, to... To, to care for the object of your compassion as a mother cares for the contents of her womb. Okay? That's what Jesus feels here. Okay, so he looks, his heart breaks, he has compassion, and he comforts her. Don't cry. Now, that's pretty cheap comfort if you can't, if you can't follow it up with something, right? But at least he's trying, right? He has something to say. He, he says to her, don't cry. Well, saying to her, don't cry, is in coming, right? If he had said to her, don't cry, and... He wasn't going to do anything for her. It, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do much, right? It wouldn't be very helpful. So he's always, so listen, he's doing more and more and more. He looks, he has compassion, he speaks to her. Don't cry. She hasn't said anything to him. He goes and says to her, don't cry. Then he goes over and touches the coffin. So not only does he comfort her, offer her words of consolation, but he does something. He follows up his compassion with this action of touching the coffin, which is no incidental thing to do. I mean, so... The, the means of preserving bodies were certainly not as good as they are today, right? So it's a stinky, unclean thing, not to mention ceremonially unclean, right? Touching the coffin renders Jesus unclean. He needs to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, right? This is serious. Just like when he touches the lepers, um, he makes himself unclean, right? His, his compassion is followed up by this action of, of, of entering the situation that he finds the, the woman in, right? He is, he is with, the, with her there, taking on the uncleanness that her son is enduring. Okay? He looks, his heart breaks, he says, don't cry. He goes over, touches the coffin, 
and the pallbearers stopped. And this is, I think, a remarkable thing, not an incidental fact, right? The funeral procession stops. I mean, funeral processions always get to their destination, right? There's, there's, I mean, they go where they're going, and they don't, they don't stop and reverse course. But he stops the funeral procession, all right? He changes, what, he changes the course of what would, would otherwise be unchangeable. The fate of this man's body was the ground. And Jesus stops the, the funeral procession. And then he speaks to a dead man. In, um, yeah, I mean, it's, that is, we, we're used to hearing these kinds of things, but Jesus talks to the body, talks to the dead body in the coffin, right? Um, so he's adding more and more and more. Not only does he speak to the mother, but he speaks to the dead body, and he says, young man, I tell you, get up. And then we have this, this even more incredible juxtaposition. The dead man sat up, right? The man who can't sit up sits up. The man who can't talk talks, right? Um, so Jesus, again, is, is, is doing more and more. Maybe she expected that he would comfort her. Maybe, maybe if anything, he would comfort her. Maybe he would provide for her. He does more. He gives her his gives her her son back. And just to tie things together with Elijah and Elisha here, this phrase, Jesus presented him to his mother. Jesus gave the son back to her mother. In, in the Greek, that's the, the very same phrase that occurs when Elijah gives back the boy to the, the widow of Zarephath, or the, the woman, the Shunammite woman. Elisha raises the, widow, the widow's son at Zarephath. Elijah raises the Shunammite's son, and he gives the boy back to her. Very same language. The connection here is, is, is so strong. Jesus is doing what Elijah and Elisha did. Okay, everybody on board? Does that make sense? Okay, any questions? So now, now the challenge is to think about who needs this story, all right? And now if you cheat, you're going to look at that page where I wrote down a bunch of answers. (laughs) But let's go ahead. What do you you think? Uh, Who needs to hear this story? Okay, all right. Jesus, right. <laughs> okay, any, anybody more specific? Wayne Scheidt. <laughs> all right, listen, how about, that was funny, but from now on, no more specific names, all right? Just, I, I want to stay safe. <laughs> okay, so how about this? The hopeless and the helpless, right? So she had nothing going for her. So anybody who has nothing going for them, this story is for them. Alexa. Yeah, right. What, what, you know, what can God do for me? Um, how can I come to God and ask him for anything, you know, when what, when, when what, I, what I've lost is so, is so great, right? What can, you know, um, go ahead, Mike. People who do not know what God does. That's right, yeah. So, how do you, how, so often people understand God to be somebody who, um, you know, if he's compassionate, it's on, it's on people who are particularly pious, right? Or if, he, if, if they think about him as being wrathful or angry or upset or vengeful, this story tells us the exact opposite. He's, he's compassionate on somebody who, is, who, who has nothing going for them, who has you know, nothing to offer him. Right? Good. Anything else? How about, uh, let's see, those who don't know, those who think there are, are limits to what God can do. Right? So we do this all the time right, for what we think we need, and what's the, who is it that says, Bernard of Clairvaux, right? You pray for, God always gives you what you need or something better, right? 
here we have that, perfect, that perfectly illustrated here. So this story is for those people who think that, that there are limits to what God can give them or that God's limited by what they, what they can see around them, what they can understand, what they can ask for. Jeanette? It's interesting that here Right, right. Jesus always acts first. Jesus always is the one who, who takes the takes the step, right? And here here it's more perfectly illustrated than any I mean than anywhere we've seen lately, right? He's the one who takes the initiative, right? I think for those who think, yeah, I haven't done enough, yeah, I don't go to church, yeah, I'll say my prayers, you know, all these things, quote unquote, I'm not worthy. You know, again, yeah. Right. Right. And it's about, it's about your need for him. So, right? so the question is not, um, am I good enough? Am I, have I done enough? But do I need him enough? And well, that, then, then, then there you are really talking about everybody. But you can think about any number of people who, who say, no, I need too much. Right? Uh, but, but it's your need for Jesus which, defines his, which, which you know, elicits his compassion for you. He's compassionate because you need him. Right? He sees her need. Good. Okay. Is that clock right? Do you know? Do you leave when that hits 45? <laughs> okay. Only when it gongs. How, okay, so let me just quick, you can read these. These are my summaries uh, of, of short ways we can, uh, we can tell the story. This is, this is a really challenging exercise. So I encourage you to all practice it because this took me, this was hard work coming up with these short summaries. And, but the great thing about it, which uh, I think is deliberate on the part of Pastor Bruzek, if you, if you summarize something in these short terms, like if you say, this story is about how Jesus stops funerals, right? If you say that, you have to say more. You have to, fle- you have to flesh it out, right? Not because it's not clear, but because they're going to want to know what you mean, right? So being able to do that, being able to have your punchline, being able to know the point um, really opens the door for, for more conversation for telling more of the story. Okay. Can I leave you there? Is that good? Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.